Do you ever want the songs to keep going and the sermon to never happen? The answer is no. Let me pray for us. Father, we do want you to minister to us today. We are broken vessels. We have feet of clay. We have hard hearts and stiff necks. And we're just human. But we're here for divine purposes. And what we're going to talk about today from an ancient, seemingly cynical book is just can penetrate. And I pray that it would today. Lord, that uh, this subject that can be so dominant in our lives, it can give us so much pain. I pray that you would minister grace to us today and give us insight into what we can do next as we learn today. Help us to be open in Jesus, we pray. Amen. You could be seated, and as you're seated, uh, grab your Bibles if you want to. You know, we're going to put it on the screen in a moment, but Ecclesiastes is where we're going. We're in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes, uh, sermon number two in this series. A couple things, we said this at the first service, I want to make sure our church knows. A couple things I want to tell you about by way of just informing you. I want to let you know the numbers are in and we, uh, we don't count a lot of things around here, but we sure are glad to say this because we challenge you. We believe that everybody needs to give and every gift is needed, but we just completed our best financial year ever in 2021. So we just want to say thank you. If you are a giver, we just want to say thank you. The first service applauded. Uh, they just jumped up and down and were swinging from the chandeliers and it was a great moment. Um, we like them better, I get apparently, but no, praise God for the best year ever financially. This allows us, let me just tell you, we want to operate our finances with transparency, integrity, and generosity. Nobody's getting rich around here, but we're able to do more ministry uh, with more giving. And you know the blessing of giving if you jump in uh, with us. The second thing you know, we are doing a good goodbye around here. We let you know at the beginning of the year that one of our favorites, one of our uh, VIPs, Nick Crawford, our executive pastor, is moving away. He and his family, Kristen and Coy and Kennedy Vale, they'll be moving to Dallas, Texas. He'll be one of the executive pastors at the Village Church in Texas. And, you know, uh, Elvis sang about it, but suspicious minds can kind of come into play when someone leaves a church, as particularly an uh, important pastor like Nick. There's no scandal. There's no conflict. This is really a good, good story of Nick being called and us sending him out. We circled up in my office behind this wall this week, all the staff, and we thanked gift, uh, Nick. I, we thanked Nick for the gift of a good goodbye, of leaving, uh, leaving us well. Not, not a lot of endings happen good, and Nick has given that to us. And on February 27th, we'll have a, a final service, not a funeral, a final service. It'll be a send-off. Uh, Nick has given the choice. He can preach or sit on the front row, and I can roast him. And uh, it's going to be a good day, and we'll uh, pray for, over him and send him out and keep in touch with him and maybe have him come back once or twice a year and stand right here. But so proud of his growth. Um, for sure. Ecclesiastes, I had someone, her name is Diane DeFore. I shouldn't tell on her, but if you know her, tell her I talked about her in the second service. But uh, she came, uh, she approached me before the first service and she said, Robert, I did what you said last week and I, I tried to read through Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters, and I, I, I made it through chapter six and that was it. So under the sun, this expression, chasing after the wind. Uh, if you're like me and like Diane, you want happy, happy, clappy, clappy, some cheer, some optimism in the, in the melancholy mood that we have nationally and globally. So Ecclesiastes can be a little bit tough. I said because of its structure, because of its tone, it seems to ramble. It seems to repeat itself, but it's very important. And the, the tone there, the structure is, uh, is that way, this Hebrew uh, wisdom literature but it's vital for us, and we see Jesus in it. Solomon inherited the throne from his father, King David. Wealth, wisdom, power, pleasure. He owned everything and experienced everything. He ate the 
finest foods, drank the choicest wines, went to bed with the most beautiful women, had the most exotic travel, wore the, the best clothes out there. He speaks in the second chapter about silver and gold, herds and flocks, female servants and male servants. He had it all, musicians, he had disposal. And in a head pocket chapter, the 10th verse, he says that uh, nothing, my, I withheld nothing that my eyes desired. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Now pause for a moment because that's a great claim. I withheld whatever my eyes desired, I got it. Whatever my heart wanted, whatever pleasure, I didn't, I didn't keep my feet from going there. I got it all. But in the first sentence, thankfully it's not the last sentence of this book, but in the first sentence of the thread, remember I, I denied my eyes nothing. I kept my heart for no pleasure. 217, first sentence, I hated life. Well, how can that be? Both theological and philosophical. How can that be? And I think it's, I've, I've thought a lot about it. I think that there's a couple of words that can dominate a life if only if only what what is your if only if only what do your eyes desire what does your heart want to go after if only I could get this I bet you have one or two or ten if onlys if only I get this but then some of us live with this because when your if only comes true you're left with a now what if only I could get that job, well, you got the job. If only I could get the promotion, the corner office, well, you got the job, you got the promotion, the corner office. If only I could get the bigger paycheck. If only I could get my friends to respect me. If I only could get this girl. If only, if only, now what? And Ecclesiastes, in some ways, is a now what book. It's a now what because you got all this, but now what? And what does he say? I hated life. Silver and gold, herds and flocks, male servants, female servants, Everything that I built, houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. Everything was there for me with steroids on it. Exclamation points. Everything in surplus, but I hated life. Now, how could he get uh, to this place? Two things that we need to understand. It will help you read the whole book and glean wisdom from it. The first is the phrase we talked about last week, this phrase on the screen, under the sun. This simply means life without God. And so the cynicism is green-lighted. To me, the cynicism is understood without God. Without God, life under the sun, without God, is an important phrase to understand, to interpret some of this book where he sounds like a depressed French philosopher. And the second thing, the second truth that I want to set for you today before we jump into it is this. Solomon had so much of everything that he lost his desire for anything. That can be true. As I've gotten older, I've joined with some friends. Sometimes it's a different group. Um, I see one of my friends that's joined me on a couple of these. But we go hiking and camping. We check the uh, United States map of topography. We look for high peaks for vast summits for the Grand Canyon to go low rim to rim south rim to north rim we did one year but we want to go somewhere and this is this is me I'm ready for a trip this is my packing gear I've laid it out I've learned from my mistakes this is how to pack light and have everything that you need come see me if you want to go camping with us but we go somewhere and you'll see a couple of pictures of us I think on the Colorado Trail last year but we love to go somewhere and can I just say 80% of the trip is hard 
Like it is hard. We're lugging our gear. We're climbing uphill. We're sleeping on the ground. We're preparing our food. We're filtering our water. We're not young anymore. It's just hard. And I remember these trips, uh, although different locations, different stories, there's kind of a common thread. When we emerge, when we come out of the Grand Canyon or off the Colorado Trail, we put in and then you get out. And when, you're there, when you get out, you, we go to a restaurant. And y'all, I'm telling you, when we go to a restaurant, it's like, I can't wait. I walk in and we're smelling like, and we don't care, but we're smelling. It's like some strange cocktail of body odor and off insect repellent with campfire smoke. And we walk in and we don't care. We, we have worn the same clothes, even slept in the same clothes. We smell the way we smell and look haggard like we look haggard. But we walk in and we can't wait to bite into a charbroiled cheeseburger with fries and a Coke, Diet Coke, because I'm healthier, and a chocolate shake. And I'm telling you, absolutely there is a God. In those, just there's no doubt about it in the moment. There is a God and he is good. Now, why do we enjoy that so much? We enjoy it because of what we haven't had. Because of four days we've lived on, our substance has been instant oatmeal and granola bars. And so a charbroiled cheeseburger with fries, Coke, and a shake. Oh, a hotel room. You turn on a faucet and warm water. Just It's like a... a a five-star spa, not that I've ever been to a five-star spa. It's what it would be like. And to lay in a soft bed after being on the ground with an older man's back for four to five days. Oh, it just, it just the pleasure there. But Solomon was the opposite of our experience when we go camping and hiking. He had indulged all of his passions. He had gotten whatever he wanted. And because he got everything, he couldn't enjoy anything. And here's what he says as he moves towards some realism that we need today. He says in Ecclesiastes 2.24, and this is our verse. I want, I want you to know it before you leave here today and take it with you. Ecclesiastes 2.24. Here's what he says. There is nothing better for a person, nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand. This morning I want to talk to you this reality can it be true in you can you enjoy your work let me ask you not without a show of hands just play the game in your mind how many of you love your work how many of you hate your work how many of you are somewhere in the middle where you tolerate your work Gallup poll did a recent survey of American workers and they broke it down this way between love it hate it tolerate it but 30 of Americans said that they love their work. Um, 52% they said they tolerate it. And 18% said they hate it. So you do the math there. You see that 70% of us in America either tolerate or hate our work. Now, this isn't a small sermon point. I hope you see that because you will spend some 35 to 45 years of your waking life on the job. It's a significant thing. Theologically, God created work. You have relational needs. We all get that. You're going to hear that from any church you go to. You heard it last week when we talked about Ecclesiastes 1, how there's a time to ponder the important and to know what's meaningful. And we talked about that hospital bed where your, your life is likely to end and what matters most. But listen, 
understand there's a time for everything and there's a time to work. So what I want to do today is give you four alignments, we're calling them, four ways to align your life so that this could be more true of you, so that you could find more satisfaction in your work. And the first alignment is the God alignment. Preachers talking about God first, imagine that. The God alignment. Robert Bella wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in this book, he's got a few chapters on work, and he says that there's a few ways that we can treat our work. I want to give them to you. You can treat your work as a job. If you treat your work as a job, it's about getting a paycheck to pay your bills. And let me just say this. If you spend, if you treat your work as a job and as a job only, and you treat it as to what you can receive from it, you will eventually resent it. You can see, you can treat your work as a job. You can treat your work as a career. A career, the motivation is a bit higher because it's not just about the paycheck so that you can pay bills, but it is about your, again, the motivation is higher, but it's about your advancement and your prestige. So there's more into it and you can get more strokes from it. You can derive more significance from it. You're more in a sweet spot. It's not just a job. And that probably reflects in the salary that you're receiving, but it's about your advancement and your prestige. And can I just say, if if you treat your work just as a career, it's also about what you're receiving and what happens when it doesn't go well. What happens when your significance, because if it's about advancement and prestige, you're tied up in it. And that can bring you great heartache and it can, it can become the dominant idol in your life. The third thing that Robert Bella says in Habits of the Heart, how we can treat our job, not as, a, or treat our work as a job or as a career, but as a calling. When there's a calling, there's a caller. This is faith-based. You've heard it before. When there's a calling, there's a caller. Somebody's calling. Who's calling? The caller is God. You're not the caller. You may have the calling, but you're the callee. And the callee is beholden to the caller. To live out your calling, I probably should stop at this point. But look at, uh, consider Colossians 3, 23. It says that whatever you do, in other words, God gets honor out of the diversity of people. God gets honor out of the, some people are accountants and architects and engineers. Some people are in film and medicine and law. Some are preachers, some are philosophers, some are poets. Some teach school and coach and some live in a van down by the river. But whatever you do, work heartily. Put all of your heart into it as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Because it's a calling. And if you have a calling, your heart will go more into it. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Consider no matter what you do, whatever you do, uh, I want to ask you this question. How does working for a noble purpose as unto God, using the language from Colossians 3, how does it shift your motive, identity, and your energy? Do you know anybody that brings energy to the workplace? Do you know anybody that, I mean, they help shape the culture and their motivation is higher could it be that they have more than just, just more than just a paycheck? Because you know, a paycheck for many of us, it's automatically deposited in a bank account every two weeks. But a longing, a heart orientation, a calling is something very different. And it's the ache of your heart. It's the ache of your heart to find that and to live that out. A friend of mine is an insurance salesman. And he was very discouraged about his job. It was paying the bills, providing for his family, but he was discouraged by it. He wasn't making the connection. It felt somewhere between a job, probably a career, but he's very despondent in it. And he said there was a turning point for him as as unto God moment for him when a family lost their father. 
and he overheard the eight-year-old girl in this family of five, now a family of four, their dad is dead, and he heard this eight-year-old girl say, we're going to be okay. And she was assuring siblings and her mama and herself, we're going to be okay. But my friend, the insurance salesman, said that, told the truth. One of the big reasons they were going to be okay was because of the insurance that they had. And my friend said, I began, that was, a, that was a, the plates, the tectonic plates shifted for me. And it changed. There's still drudgery. There's still monotony in the job. But I can see it as a calling to see the way. That I'm, I'm not just providing for my family but I'm helping other people be able to say, it's okay. There's dignity to what you do. You don't have to be on a stage preaching in front of people in a stained glass. There is dignity in all kind of jobs out there. So think about that, this question, how does working for a noble purpose as unto God, how can it shift your motivation, your identity, and your energy? Another friend of mine decided that he was going to bring God to work with him. He was going to overcome a fear he had and, had and have God conversations. Not to try to force anything down co-workers' throats, but according to 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a reason for the hope that was in you. My friend was seeing Jesus change his life. And so he thought he'll be more open and more bold, not an obnoxious, loud way, but in a, in a magnetic way. And he had the courage to invite one of his co-workers and his spouse to church, to Fondren Church. And a really cool scenario, I, when I was talking to him later about it, about a year into it, I asked him, hey, I've seen them, and I've, it seems like God's working and convicting them, and um, I'd love to talk to them. I, I, you know, have, you, have you shared the gospel with them? I was going to shout, I'm the preacher, I was going to share the gospel with them. And he said, I, I just did today, and they accepted Jesus as their Savior. Because he made a commitment to be bold in his workplace, to share the gospel, to invite a friend to tap in. This person had not been to church in a while. They had a lot of things going on where they needed divine guidance. Look, for some of you are right there today. That is your mission field, to be able to influence people around you. And because, you know, trust the sovereignty of God. Don't, you know, throw four spiritual laws down their throat the first time you have a conversation with them. Share with them what Jesus means to you. Talk to them about your church. Invite them to be a part of that. Bring God to work with you. The God alignment. The second alignment I want to talk to you about is the passion alignment. And there is a passion, let's just define it simply, it's what you're good at and what you love to do. What you're good at and what you love to do. Now there is what I want to describe the myth of passion. Here's the myth of passion. It's like love or romance, like somewhere out there. Somewhere out there, out beneath the pale sky. We'll find one another somewhere out there, out where dreams come true. I shouldn't have sung that long, but that was awkward, wasn't it? <laughs> I can sing when I try. But anyway, like we romance, that's from a Disney movie in the 80s, and my wife is just horrified right now. But there's a Disney movie from like the 80s about love, like somewhere out there, I'm going to find that someone somewhere out there underneath the sky. But we can do that with jobs. So we can do that with our passion. Somewhere out there, I'm going to discover my passion. And it's going to be a job that pays me. And oh my goodness, when I find that passion of mine, it's just going to be like torrents of living water, like cascading out of my heart, like the water flowing from Niagara Falls. And I'm going to, you know, just have my happiness. My passion is out there. That's the myth of passion. Be very careful not to romanticize what we're about to talk about. But there is the reality of passion. 
Remember what we said? It's what you're good at and what you love to do. Research from reputable institutions show us that the best moments of life do not involve sex or chocolate. The best moments of life, they, they center around when you are deeply, fully immersed in a significant task that you enjoy. Time goes fast. You're enraptured with it and you're doing good and you're making a contribution to the greater good. Those are the great pleasurable moments of life. God has given us, he's created you with a passion. Find the passion that you have. Find that passion. Now, the challenge that we experience with this is we got to work. We got to pay the bills. And we'll talk about this when we talk about our fourth challenge, but hold on to that for a second. The third, the third alignment beyond the God alignment, beyond the passion alignment, is uh, what we'll call the challenge alignment. Let's look at some levels of work and where you could find yourself. Um, the first level of work, we'll call it this. We're there. Waiting, waiting, waiting. We'll call it the under-challenged. The under-challenged. If you're under-challenged at work, you're bored. When you're under-challenged at work, you're walking the halls, frittering away time, doing who knows what on your computer. You're shooting the breeze with colleagues and coworkers. You're under-challenged. If you're under-challenged, you're probably going to eventually quit. The second level that we can talk about is where you're appropriately challenged. And when you're appropriately challenged, that's when you're sort of in your sweet spot. You, you feel like you've got a good job. You feel like you're bringing some passions uh, into play. You're appropriately challenged. But there's a, a third level where some of us find ourselves, where young people, you could find yourself. So listen to this part of the sermon because I've been there. Talk to someone after the first service who is there. But it's the dangerously over-challenged. If you're dangerously over-challenged, let me tell you what you're like. You'll know it on Sunday night. When this time of year, when other people are sitting around watching like Tom Brady and the Bucks or the New England Patriots, like you're in the room and you're sort of watching the game, but you're not. Because Sunday night makes you worry about Monday morning. And you put it off all weekend, but Monday morning is coming and your stomach churns and your stress level goes high and your blood pressure goes up because you are dangerously over-challenged. And you think about the work that awaits you in the whole work week and you think this is impossible. And if you're in the dangerously over-challenged red zone, it will break you. You will eventually break. What will break, preacher? Your health will break. The blood pressure goes up, your stomach churns and ulcerates, uh, back pressure, neck pressure, you, you carry it with you. To some cases, man, it can be um, heart failure. We had a friend, uh, an acquaintance, come over to the house a couple of years back. And my kids even knew after he talk, spoke with us that something was wrong with him. One of my kids said, what's wrong with him, dad? And he had been in this dangerously over-challenged zone for so long without getting any help that it, it, in essence, fried his brain. There are ill effects to being in this zone. So two questions I want to ask you. The first is this, where do you do your best work? At what level? Where do you do your best work? It's not what you think. Where do you do your best work? Research shows that we do our best work just above the appropriately challenged place on the chart. So you're not 
over, 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 dangerously over-challenged, but you're more than appropriately challenged. In other words, there's something that fits you, but it matches some of your gifts and skill sets, but yet you've got to reach beyond it, not into a dangerously overextended area. And can, can I say this, since we're preaching Colossians and the third chapter says so wonderfully that there's a time for everything, just for balance here, can I say that there are jobs and occupations, and I've got one of them, and some of you do, where there are going to be some seasons where you've got to go really, really, really hard. And you, if you're married, you have to look at your spouse and go, hey, can you work with me here? Do you understand? And it, it, but it can't last long. And I just real quick want to say, I've got the best um, spouse in that regard. She understands when I've got to go hard in a season and she has given me amazing love and support in this time and just tackled things for me. I'm not, I don't uh, express love and appreciation like like I need to. Uh, But look, that's a reality. There's some things, some of you have some jobs where you have a job where you really need to go hard, but you don't, don't keep doing that. Understand the seasons and understand the times of rest. But you do your best work when you're really, really challenged. You'll grow bored, you'll quit, or they'll want you to quit if you just stay under challenged. So my first question is, where do you do your best work? It's above you, it's outside of you. It's not in a danger zone, but it's, it's outside of you. It's more than you think. God thinks higher of you than you think of yourself. He loves you more, he expects more of you, he's gifted you in ways you've beaten yourself up, you've demeaned your value and worth, and God says, no, there's more that he can do in you. And that's that zone that you can be at. Second question beyond where do you do your best work is if you are in the under-challenged or dangerously over-challenged level, whose responsibility is it to get help and to get out? We're tempted to say my boss or the organization that I work for. But I want to say to you in love today, it's your responsibility. You take responsibility. If you are under-challenged, have the conversation. If you are dangerously over-challenged, seek help. Take responsibility for that. I'm a, a leader beyond just preaching. I'm a leader of a, a team, and um, I, you know, it brings me great joy. Not long ago, in fact, this week, someone, a best friend of one of our workers said that this person is the happiest they've ever seen. Can I tell you what joy that brought me? To see someone in a zone, at a level, ministering to people, doing good, working in a, a sweet spot, and bringing so much blessing to people. That brings me so much happiness. But I can see people, I, I interact with people that are under-challenged, Take it upon yourself. Don't don't blame your boss and don't blame the organization. Take responsibility for that. The God alignment, where are you? The passion alignment, how do you see that intersect with your life? The challenge alignment, what zone are you in? And then lastly, the compensation alignment. Jesus told a lot of stories. A lot of them had to do with work. Here's what he said in the midst of a parable in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. I'll drop this on you today. Those who work deserve their pay. Here's a choice, and it is such an agonizing choice. There are a handful of of us, and we'll try not to hate you, but your passion, what you love to do, and your pay, they match up. Like you, your desired level of income and what, you know, what the market provides and what you desire to earn a good and decent living, like you're able to do that with something that you love. But there aren't many of us and most of us have to choose between, hey, this is my passion and this is a decent standard of living. And I have seen people 
And it's, there's no easy answer here. I'll talk about that in a minute. There's no easy answer. But I have seen people choose one to their own detriment. I have seen able-bodied people virtually bankrupt their family because they refuse to take a job that doesn't suit 100% of their passions. And I've also seen people take the big paycheck and they've got the big house and the nice car, but they're dead inside. And you can see it when you look at them in their eyes. And so the passion, you know, if... And here's some of the wisdom. James 1.5, if you like wisdom, ask of God. That, so that's what you would need to do. Ask of God. If you're choosing and you don't know if you've made the right choice, you're afraid of making the wrong choice, you need wisdom in this area, ask God. Ask others. Proverbs 15.22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but in the presence of many there is success. Get people to look into your life and help you in making these decisions. But I have seen people make choices like this. They, they choose their passion but they're worried about their pay, so they have to supplement their pay somehow. If they're married, they can have a spouse to do that. They can work another job. But man, they're following their heart. They just struggle to make a living. But you, you're going to need to compensate for that. And I have seen people, man, they, they keep the job. I mean, it's, they went to school a long time, and it earns them a good living. And don't take that for granted. In fact, uh, I've got some friends, not only are they earning a living, like they're providing for their family, but they're providing for everybody. That's a lot of pressure, by the way. I talked to a guy for the first service. Man, I feel, I don't feel appreciated. I feel a lot of pressure because he's providing for a lot of people. It's, a, it's an important job. But I, have, I find people that, man, they stay there. They stay there, but what they do is that passion that God has given them, they volunteer. They serve outside of the job. Now, they've got to do their work heartily as unto the Lord, but they, they're not doing that primarily for the passion, so they, they serve. And churches can be a great source of blessing for people because we want you to serve the city. We want to be in the city and for the city. We need people to serve in our church, and we can help you tap into God-given passions, help you discover the spiritual gift that God has given you. So there are these alignments by the way, 1 Timothy 5.8 says this. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith. It's really important for everyone who's able-bodied to be a provider in their family. If that's the calling, then do it well. You know, too often I meet men in particular. I'll leave the ladies alone. Y'all, y'all, most of y'all have this, but there's men like 37, 39, 43. They want to be a hang gliding instructor in San Diego, but they've got a wife and four kids. I'm like, bruh, I don't need a Bible verse, but you know what? I do have one and I'll, I'm waiting to use it. I just use it today. So these alignments, where are you with these alignments? If you want your job to be a source, if you want to say what Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, we can eat our food and drink our drink and have joy and find satisfaction in our work. What a gift from God. If you're able to say that, think about these alignments and how you can align your life. Now, I got a couple more minutes. What I want to do is kind of add an addendum. Don't let me scare you. But I'm going to give an addendum to this. Um, a few sins that we commit if we're not careful. When we, when we ask God, have you ever noticed that when, when you ask God to come into a relationship, when you ask God to come into your workplace, when you ask God to enter into an area you experience great blessing because you're being obedient, but you also, it can get more difficult. It can be, it can be harder. There's going to be challenges and there's conviction because when you invite the spirit of God into an area like work, you'll be convicted of your sin. So you want to experience his grace, but you want to be obedient as he gives you next steps. I want to, I want you very quickly, I want to share uh, four um, sins that we can commit when we're not
think satisfaction in our job. We haven't fully yielded. The first is this. It's the sin of sloth. It's the sin of sloth. Look at Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. It's speaking about a vineyard and a vineyard that was um, not a thing of bounty and beauty as it should have been. Sluggers do not plow in season. So at harvest time, they look, and, but they find nothing. There are too many people who are out there getting a paycheck, but they're, they're, no longer, they're no longer fully present and fully there. And there's a sloth there. No matter what you do, do it well and apply yourself in season and out of season. The second thing we need to guard ourselves against is the sin of pride. In Israel, they were looking for king because all the nations, the great and mighty nations around them, Israel's always been a little tiny, you know, picked on country. And all around them, nations had kings. Israel wanted a king. And God's like, are you going to get a king? But here's the words he had, a little bit out of context. I tried to help a little bit, Deuteronomy 28, 13. It says this about the king. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. And he says, but you need not stray to the left or to the right. He's talking about politically, just be a moderate right now. He, but be obedient. Don't stray either way, but just be obedient. And here, what, here's, the, here's the point. And it's even pointing to Jesus, a king of all kings is that God wants anybody in an important job not to think they're better than other people. Anybody in a position of influence should not think the rules don't apply to them. It's really important to God. And we read Philippians 2 earlier in our worship set where Jesus, the king of heaven, laid it down to come and to take on the form of a servant, to be like man. And that's the service. So if you have an important job, can I say in love, I'm proud of you and I love what that job brings for you and the way that you can provide for your relatives and your household and give to your church and make a difference in your community. But don't let pride get in and don't think you're better than the common man. A third a sin, I'm gonna call this the sin of 24-7-ism. We can make up words here. The sin of 24-7-ism. Exodus chapter 20. This is from the Ten Commandments, so I bet most of you have heard this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it separate. Keeping it holy. The word holy means separate. So when God created, he separated. Scripture tells us that he separated light from darkness, sea from earth, sky from land. He separated. And here's, the, here's what's implicit in the Ten Commandments and the heart of God. What God has separated, we ought not to join together. And what God has joined together, we ought not to separate. Some of us in my job say that at weddings because we don't want some of y'all messing up. We don't want them messing up. We don't want them to let things in their marriage that ought not to be in their marriage. What God has separated, don't let somebody join together. What God has joined together, don't let somebody separate. God is saying he separated. Here's the, the fourth thing, the last thing that he separated according to the creation story. He separated labor from leisure. And some of us don't find satisfaction in our lives because work becomes an idol and we're not able to separate. And the idea of a Sabbath is there's a time when you work and there's a time when you put it down and go home. And it needs to be a clean line. You follow the heart of a creator when you trust him for a Sabbath day rest. A couple of years ago, I recommended John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And a few of you read it and it's very impactful, isn't it? But everybody that gave me input on recommending this book uh, came back to me and said, that's some, that's some radical stuff in there. Boy, that's radical stuff. I mean, woo, that's radical. It's called rest. And it says something about you that you think it's radical. And me too. 
because that sounded kind of haughty. I didn't mean to. Last thing, I'll say this, Lauren and the team are going to start coming up. The sin of avoiding accountability. Jesus told lots of stories. He told lots of stories, an awful lot of stories about work. And he tells this one story about an employer who entrusted three different employees with resources, opportunities, and time. And he entrusted them with these three ideas, these three values. And the, the hinge moment of the story was when the employer returns and asks them to give an account. Isn't that always the hinge moment? Oh, here's, here's some good ideas. You came to church today, you heard the word, here's some good ideas. But one day you're gonna be given an account. Do you know that? Like one day you and I are gonna be given an account of what we heard and what we learned and what, we, what we've been told to do. This wouldn't be so boring, church, if we lived that way, would it? Let's hear it some, and then let's go out and do it. Let God speak to you and be obedient to what he says. Whoa, that's a faith journey right there. The employer comes back and two had done what he said. With the resources, with the opportunities, with the time given, they were obedient and they were blessed because of their obedience. But in Jesus' story, there was one of the three who had not done anything. And what did the person who did nothing with work, with the resource, opportunity, time, what, what did he do? You know what he did. He blamed the boss. He said, you're a, you're a hard man in Jesus' story. Hey, that's not my, I didn't do it. You're a, you're a hard man. I just don't want you to spend 35 to 40 years of your life because too many people spend days and weeks and months and years in a job working but they're avoiding accountability, not realizing that they will give an account to God and how they've loved, how they've invested, how they prioritize, how they've brought good into the world. Would you stand with me? And I'm gonna close with going back to camping. When, when we camp, our shoulders get sore, our backs are hurting, our feet are some combination of wet and we got blisters on our hands and it's just hard. But when we get to a campsite, we throw our gear on the ground and we plop down and we moan because we're old and we just moan and then, but life starts coming to us. And we start like setting up a camp and we start interacting. We start talking about the wildlife we've seen and how we made it through this and did that. And we thought so-and-so wasn't gonna make it through this, but we did and we pulled, we cheered them on and we, we did and we got there. And all of a sudden, the, the 80% <clears throat> that's hard, we start seeing the 20% of why it's worth it. Because when you go on those trips and everything's set for you, there's not like a lot of reward there. It's pleasurable, but it's not a lot of reward. But we're sitting around that campfire, we realize we accomplished a task. And you know what's happening? We're away from our screens and we're away from our responsibilities. We're away from our normal lives. We're under God's canopy of sky. And what's happening is a repairing of the soul. You see that 80% that's so hard makes that 20% so worth it. And I want to speak it over you because I hope, believe a whole lot of people need to hear it today. That's a parallel to work. There is so much that is hard. <clears throat> but only through working with a team and accomplishing a mission and pushing through adversity and having a task that's bigger than you, only through getting through that and enduring that and working together, only is there reward on the other side. And the scripture calls it work. 
Oh, let's put Ecclesiastes 2 on the board again. Would you read it with me? You know when you read in a congregation, you've got to read a little slower, so don't get in a hurry. I want us to read in unison. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that. Even this is from God's hand. Let's, let's do it one more time. A little more energy. Can we do that? There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand. Father, thank you that you are a worker. And when you created, you worked and you watched over. And you said it is good. And you call us to put our hands on the plow. And only through work, only through investment, only through adversity, only in seeing you provide, can we become like you and appreciate the goodness that you have. So minister to us. This is hard for some people. It's really hard. I pray that you would minister to us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to give you an assignment because I talked to someone after the first service and it really got me. Dad with a big family and he's kind of an important guy at work. A lot of people count on him. And he just said, he said, Robert, I feel so underappreciated, so used. And there's a lot of you. You don't have to be a dad, but I know a lot of dads. Nobody ever talks about this. But God sees. He sees. But here's what I want everybody to do. Go into work tomorrow and find someone you work with and appreciate them. All right? You going to do it? Go to work. Find somebody and appreciate them. Give them some encouragement because we are just, uh, we're starving for it. We really are. And don't tell them I told you to because that'd be weird. Just do it. God bless these tithes and offerings as we give. In Jesus we pray. Amen.